Welcome to Reading Between the Reels. I'm Matt Leader. And I'm Craig Dickinson. Today on the show, we are looking at The Matrix. So Matt, um, The Matrix, what are your overall thoughts? So, you know, I, I actually watched this uh, fairly recently and rewatched it again for this episode. And, you know, taking the time to kind of look at it very closely and kind of look for the cinematic aspects that we like talking about on the show. Uh, it made me appreciate the movie more, actually. I think that it's always been a very entertaining film. Uh, very clearly, it was an influential movie for blockbusters, action movies, and Hollywood in general. But it's just like, it's a really solid story. Uh, I'm sure you'll bring this up later and talk about it a little bit more, but uh, The Hero's Journey. <laughs> it, it is a very classic example of Hero's Journey storytelling. And I find myself, I'm just get sucked into those kinds of narratives. And so it's like, the, you know, I've got a few quibbles here and there, but it's largely, it holds up really well. Um, and I just, I, I found myself kind of sinking back into, yeah, this is a really good film. Yeah, I uh, watched it a couple times recently. Obviously, rewatched it, you know, just a few days ago for for this episode. But I think it was a month or two ago that we, my wife and I, introduced it to our son, uh, who's finally old enough to see it. And I kind of knew that we'd be doing it at some point uh, for the show. And so I started to kind of turn on that analytical brain while I was watching it, and and noticed quite a few things that we'll be talking about today. I was like, yeah, make make sure I pay attention to that next time I watch it, um, and it. Yeah, just I've always enjoyed the movie, but I do agree that that you can kind of enjoy it on a whole other level, you know. And that's one thing that I I try and tell my students too is you know even if you've seen the movie or you're having to watch something you don't want to watch with your family, you can find another way to enjoy it if you start pulling out these cinematic aspects. You can entertain yourself, you know, just by looking at it through a different lens. Mm-hmm. Uh, my first overall thought, other than that, is that. This is the film that made me see Keanu Keanu Reeves as anyone other than Ted. Because he'll always be Ted Theodore Logan from Bill and Ted for me. That was the first thing I ever saw him in. And, you know, when he was younger, he was not that good of an actor. (laughs) He was Ted every role he played. But in this, I totally believed it. Like, that made me feel like, yeah, he's also Neo. He fully embodies Neo. And I'll, I'll talk more about that when we get to performance. But another thing that jumped out a lot this time was just how much of a slow burn this movie is. Hmm. That it took, it's longer than 30 minutes before you actually find out what the Matrix is. It, there is a lot of mystery that's hidden really well. The marketing for this film, I think, was genius. You did not, I mean, that was the tagline, what is the Matrix? And it looked like in the trailers, at least my impression was, that there was some kind of supernatural aspect to it instead of the technical thing. Uh, which is an interesting concept too, where they kind of blend this mythology and you know technology, and it's kind of like we're um, what am I trying to say? That it takes uh, it disproves supernatural, like it's all kind of explained away mm-hmm. through technology, and yet that also there's this tension between the supernatural still happening at the same time and mythology and religious archetypes and that kind of stuff. So fascinating film strikes mm-hmm. lots of interesting balances between those things. 
I did, my last thing I'll mention before we jump into uh, some of the aspects is that I really appreciate how much that reveal of the real world is so disoriented for the, it's disorienting for the viewer as much as it is for, for Neo. And I remember that just seeing it for the first time, what is happening? I have no idea. And it just pulls you in. Uh, and when that reveal happens, like we're exactly in the same place that Neo's at. Yeah, you you get to, as an audience member, you get to feel what Neo is feeling. I do actually want to, you know, you, you brought up the fact that it's kind of a slow burn. And I know what you mean, because you really don't find out uh, a lot about the major. Like, it's, it's kind of spoon-fed to you, like in little doses, throughout the first half the movie. I mean, really, right? Um, I think even until... I mean, you could even say that you're still learning things right up till close to the third act, which I also think is kind of how Neo experiences it. And, you know, one of the strengths of Hero's Journey narratives is that you generally have like this, <laughs> I don't want to say like farm boy, but he's like someone who's an outsider, just like the audience is. And so you get introduced to everything as the character is being introduced to it, which helps for exposition the pacing of the film i actually thought that it wasn't a slow burn i i actually felt that it it gripped me quite quickly and you know so i know what you mean about the information kind of as slow drip but what struck me at the very beginning of the film was how quickly it grabbed my attention uh just stylistically you know the editing choice to have like a couple of the green screen like I think the very opening shot of the film is the green screen, couple numbers, which we find out is part of the matrix. But you know, you have the voiceover, and um, Trinity is talking to someone. I don't quite remember who Trinity was talking to. It's Cipher, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. she says something like, "You know, is this line safe for our people listening?" You know, and they they hang up. And then you have the police come in and I just thought it was like, that's, you mentioned the word mysterious. And I think that's definitely the case, but it's such an interesting, like you want to know more about what's going on. And so, you know, I think from that editing scene to scene perspective, they did a really good job of doling out that information just enough where you kind of understood, okay, what's going on? you know, where are we going? And then asking just enough questions, not to leave you confused, but to leave you wanting more. I really like that phrase used slow drip. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I will adopt that because you're right. Slow burn tends to be uh, used in, in terms of a film taking a while to get your attention and you have to be patient for it. This film does not ask you to be patient other than what the answers are coming, you know, right. what answers are coming. It does grab your attention immediately. You know, we get, you know, to kind of skip down to cinematography for just a bit, we get to see a little bit of bullet time almost immediately, right? We see, you know, Trinity leap into the air and then it freezes and it pans around. And it's mm-hmm. like, now that scene's been parodied so many times, <laughs> you know, I think of Shrek immediately. That's, yeah, that's exactly what I right? thought too. <laughs> but at the time in 99, this was mind-blowing. We'd never seen anything like this. Mm-hmm. And so we're like, what is, how is this possible? We have, we have no idea, but we want to know. What I also love though, is that, you know, that scene is, like I said, at the very beginning of the film, it tells you exactly what kind of movie it's going to be. 
mm-hmm. <laughs> right off the bat. Another one of my favorite uh, shots in the film, and I'm sure you like this one as well, is where you have Neo's choices, whether to take the red or the blue pill in Morpheus's glasses, where they have him exactly in each half of his, of his face. It's, it's just a, a beautiful shot uh, there. I also had the computer screens with the green vertical text being a very gripping, interesting, pulls you into the film. You don't know quite what's going on. and It's, it's one of the signature um, images in the film, for sure. And you also see it in one of the greatest moments in the, in the film where Neo sees the Matrix for really what it is. Like after the, you know, he dies and comes back, the apotheosis of the hero's journey. And you see the the agents and, you know, in kind of silhouette in that too. I also think that uh, that scene with the two pills, uh, the red pill, the blue pill, there's uh, some just pleasant composition where it's not just a like uh, shot reverse shot conversation. There is parts of that, but you also see moments of acting like physical acting uh, between the two where you have like Morpheus on one side, Neo on the other. And at various times throughout the conversation, you'll see Neo lean forward and then you'll see Morpheus lean forward and Neo lean back. And then you'll have the composition where both characters are sitting on either side and you have the glass of water sitting right there in the exact middle of the frame because that's kind of the key, right? Once you make your choice, blue pill, red pill, that's the beginning of the hero's journey right there. Right. You pick your side. Exactly. Quite literally. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's, catch. yeah, there's just some very pleasant uh, composition. And speaking of that, you know, just as far as the cinematogra- cinematography, this is a very kinetic movie in terms of camera movements and cinematography, there's not a lot of like stillness <laughs> in the film. No. <laughs> you get you get a little bit, I think, when um, the characters are on the Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar mm-hmm. uh, the ship. But other than that, like there's just a lot of motion. Um, there's also a lot of depth to the, the, the film where uh, the Wachowskis will have a foreground and background and they will do the focus rack on that to draw your attention. Mm -hmm. Um, One last thing I noticed for cinematography is if you take a look at the composition, if the composition is kind of a rectangle on your TV screen, they would very often have up to like a whole half of the screen uh, framed out, whether that's the back of someone's head or a chair whatever it is, and they would cut the focus of the composition uh, to essentially a square, one half of a square on that rectangle that is your TV screen. So there is a lot of cinematography moves that the Wachowskis and cinematographer you know, put into this film. And I found that actually really refreshing. I, I kind of wish I would see a little bit more of that in some of the action films that are coming out uh, in more, more recent ones. Yeah, I agree. And I really like what you said about the the dynamic camera movement and how everything's moving all the time, except for certain moments. And they mm-hmm. use it so sparingly. Like I think about the time where or where you're looking at the woman in the red dress and it pauses. It's really jarring because it's one of the few times that the camera's not moving. And it you know it's just that much more powerful. Uh, I looked up you know, the cinematographer for this film uh, is Bill Pope, who did the entire Matrix trilogy. And has done a ton of stuff. But like he's very versatile. I mean, he did Spider-Man's two and three, which we've already done. 
a bunch of stuff for Sam Raimi, Army of Darkness. But he also did uh, he did Shang-Chi. He did Ant-Man and the Wasp, the new Guantamania. So that'll be interesting to see if there's some things in that film. Uh, but I don't think he has a style that I would be like, yep, that's a Bill Pope movie. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's, I think that's amazing <laughs> that, he, that this movie doesn't feel like those other movies. Yeah. Well, and this, this also very feel like this feels like a Kung Fu movie in a lot of ways. Oh, sure. Right. There's a lot of martial arts. And I think that style of cinematography, that very kinetic style that they use works so well with it. And there's one more thing that popped into my head. Uh, The fighting scenes, they are not cut up (laughs) like a lot of modern movies are. Like the the actual just moment to moment editing, uh, it lingers just a little bit longer. And there's, there's still cuts and stuff, but it does tend to linger and just let you watch the movement of the actors and the camera moving with it. And I absolutely love that. I think that a lot of movies fall into this habit of, of cutting for quick dramatic, you know, to make things exciting, but it, it, it veers off into incoherent editing in some action scenes where you don't really know who's hitting who, what, what's happening, where they are. And, there's a lot of clarity as far as the editing and cinematography in this film, which is just great. Yeah, I agree. I I think of, you know, like the dojo scene Mm -hmm. is, is really, it lingers. Like you get to see like, and it's full frame too. Like you can see head to toe. Yeah. You can tell that it's the actors, you know, that are actually doing the martial arts. Uh, Along with that too, I noticed this time there's a lot of bird's eye view looking down on, on the action sequences as well. So like, there's not a lot of ways you can hide what's happening by going straight down, but it's also disorienting because it's in the matrix, which is again, intentional, right? That it should be disorienting that they're in the matrix. And this is uh, the way that you're viewing things. It's a little bit off. The thing I love color wise, I did want to mention this too, is how you have that kind of neon green filter when they're in the matrix, which looking back at it now, you're like, well, obviously in the matrix, because look at the screen. But at the time, when you didn't know what it was, it didn't really register mm-hmm. on any kind of intellectual level, maybe emotionally. But I've seen television shows. I think Supernatural did a whole season where they kind of use that green filter for no reason at all other than, hey, this kind of looks cool. And so there's enough of that where you're like, yeah, I can kind of go with it. I'm not really thinking, hey, there's something weird. But it's so different in the real world. And you know they use longer lenses and they soften the backgrounds and stuff. Uh, in the real world. So it's it's a very different, it's like two very different movies. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, what a challenge to take that on too. Yeah, and I think that's a, a perfect example of using, I mean, like you said, looking back on it, it's pretty obvious. <laughs> it's it's not exactly subtle, but that that's fine. And I, I think, you know, it it clearly is indicating that there are two different worlds in this film and the characters have to go back and forth between them. And it is just a nice, if obvious, simple visual cue for the audience to know where characters are. You know, the thing, another thing I wanted to mention too, was just how great this movie does at asking the question about what is real, mm-hmm. you know, because in, in many ways, what's in the matrix is real. I mean, when they talk at some point about, you know, if you die in the matrix, then you die in real life. So it's it's real and like you know electrical impulses into your brain, 
it's real in every way except for I don't know. I mean, really, like it's 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 pretty stinking real. It's just not what we would consider, you know, it's not the norm. Mm-hmm. It's artificial, but that does does that mean that it's not real? And they ask tons of questions like that in this film, which uh is pretty great. Now, do you think I'm trying to remember, and I think this is correct. Uh, internet was dial-up when this came out in 1999. Is that right? <laughs> uh, you're dating me a little bit here. Um, <laughs> Rob, yeah. I mean, it was yeah. around that time. At least I think we yeah, it was say right that around that time. safely, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, having to wait. I'm, okay, so I'm thinking of like 99 is the same year as The Phantom Menace and having to wait two hours to download the trailer for Phantom Menace. So that, yeah, that... Tracks. That tracks. Yeah. Because <laughs> we did. We'd wait two hours. I did that for Tomb Raider, too. <laughs> I see this. So, you know, I, I thought it was, it, it feels anachronistic. I know, I know that's not quite the right word, but it feels where, you know, the Matrix is this super high-tech advanced AI, and then they still have dial-up, where they can only escape through, like, Telephones, <laughs> right? And the dialogue, I and it, it strikes me as more kind of cute in a campy kind of way. Like, yeah, I this the movie kind of dates itself. Yeah, in that but sense, it, a genius stroke to say, you know what, we did. This is only 1999, kind of like we went back to the peak of your civilization. So, <laughs> you know, that's what it's here. And we don't know what year it is now. Yeah, right. So we can't be like. You know, it's back to the future. It's 2015. Like, where's my flying cars? Like, <laughs> it could be 500 years from now. We don't know. Uh, I did have, speaking of dial-up internet, that was one of the sounds that I picked up that was like, wow, I remember that. And that is a distinctive, and now it's like very much associated with the Matrix films. You know, that and the wow transforming sounds. There's so many of those uh, as well. And yeah, contrasted with the future techs, you have that dial-up internet and then the, <laughs> And then like robots the flying around. Sure. I'm not sure what's going on there. The score. What do you think about the score? So overall, I thought like the score did a, a pretty good job um, where it, it felt, I don't know, I, I think it, it, it fit. Like it, it was appropriate for for the film. What stood out to me were the uh, chasings. There's a number of them. And the music, it's got this real bouncing, kind of bubbly, like, score. It's not this kind of, like, frenetic, scary theme, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's moments later in the movie where it had it has a very superhero vibe to it, which works on a couple different levels for this film. Um, but I think it's kind of an interesting choice because to me, it read superhero as Neo mm-hmm. is kind of coming into his role uh, in the end when he's uh, fighting Agent Smith. Um, yeah, I, I liked it. There, yeah, there wasn't uh, any anything other than that that really stood out to me. Yeah, it's it it fits definitely. I I thought this time picking up uh, there's kind of a metallic clanging sound through a lot of the like those chasings that you're mentioning and mm-hmm. some of the action sequences. Uh, mixed with kind of a more traditional symphonic score. But what's great, I really liked it going back to that dojo scene again too, where it kind of starts that way and then it changes into like this very distinctive Asian flavor um, with drums and stuff like that. Uh, and then that morphs into like uh, like an EDM, like 
electronic dance music. There's a lot of that too. Like the lobby scene has that too. So there's oh yeah yeah again very versatile. Mm-hmm. I mean I'm 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 assuming that you know the, the cinematographer and the and the uh, the composer Don Davis are both like hey we want you guys because you guys can do lots of different stuff because we're going to be mixing this up because it is you know it's a blend of so many things you mentioned kung fu and um, you know it's anime it's superhero. It's kind of hard journey. to nail <laughs> hero's journey. It's kind of hard to nail down exactly what kind of you know traditional sci-fi, what kind of movie The Matrix actually is. It's it's yeah. a lot of these things. It is, and that's actually a great point. Where in a lot of ways it is a very mythic tale, in that it kind of just hero hero with a thousand faces style. It's like it doesn't matter the, you know the culture or the time period. It, it kind of synthesizes and blends a bunch of different things together. Yeah. The last last thing I wanted to talk about with with sound and it's always stuck out to me as brilliant is we have this harp stinger uh in the scene where Cypher is talking to Agent Smith. Yeah, the dinner and scene. And he says, yeah. Yep, and he says ignorance is bliss and then you hear the <laughs> and it's like okay. Yeah. I think just and it's really subtle. It's brief, but it it always kind of just went, "Oh, okay, this is this is something important that I'm paying attention to." So. Yeah. It's the only time harps used in the film, so it must mm-hmm. be important. Yeah, it's this kind of artificial. Everything's going to be okay. Ignorance is not bliss. Um, but that seems what seems to be how Cipher is convincing himself uh, <laughs> that it's okay to do what he's doing. Right. I don't even know if he he really believes that it's okay. I think he's just willing to, yeah, willing to do it. Mm-hmm. So moving down to performance, uh, was there anything that stuck out to you that you want to start with? So I think for the performance, I think this is an interesting film um, in the sense that, the, the well, I'll, I'll say this. One of the things that stood out to me performance-wise is uh, the agent's voice and cadence is very, it felt manufactured. You know, it feels different, artificial, uh, which I think is a really cool choice uh, to use because obviously they're computers, they're robots, they're not human. So it makes perfect sense that their speech patterns would be just, it's like uncanny valley where it's like very obvious that you understand what they're saying, but it's also just like, there's just something off about how they're saying it. So I thought that was uh, the best part. And I think all of the agents have, I mean, they're all their own unique, you know, cadence, but they were all kind of slightly different. Um, Otherwise, I thought the acting was all pretty good across the board. Uh, I think Keanu Reeves, he's not my favorite actor. I I don't, you know, he's fine. Um, but I think he's one of those actors who feels a little bit more one note to me. I don't know if he has the range uh, that a lot of other actors have. And it works in this film particularly because I think that's that's kind of who Mr. Anderson is. <laughs> he's one note. He, you know, uh, you know, he's he's got this kind of almost secret life, but really he's kind of, you know, he's going to kind of do his thing and try to stay under the surface. And as he come comes into becoming Neo, I felt like Keanu Reeves pulled off that transition as well as I could have hoped. 
Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. I thought he he's very minimalist. He doesn't emote a whole lot. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it just, it fits for this. You know, for so many, he's been in, you know, like romantic movies. And it's like, that's just not, yeah. that's just not right. That he was cast really well it. for this. I, that's what I think. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting to see if you go down the list, he's not the first choice of anybody. You know, Will Smith was the first choice for this movie and, and turned it down for Wild Wild West. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> Yeah, we should do that movie at some point, just because it is so bad. Um, But how much different a movie would that have been Mm -hmm. with Will Smith, right? Uh, So Keanu's great in this. I think that uh, Lawrence Fishburne is amazing. And I think that one of the reasons he's amazing in this film is that he has to do a lot of exposition. He has to tell us everything, because we don't know anything. And I'm enraptured while he's talking. I'm fully sucked in. He's, you know, the cadence of his voice, the deep timbre, it's just, it's great. But you also have other characters that do some exposition and it doesn't work <laughs> for me. Like Carrie Ann Moss telling things about the squids and, you know, the EMP. And there's like one point where I think it's, it's Dozer that completes her sentence, you know, search and destroy. It's like, it sounds so cheesy, right? It doesn't work. That, that takes me out of the film. It always yeah. has. Yeah. But like Lawrence Fishburne could read the phone book and I'd be like, <laughs> yes. And then we're on to the M's. Tell me more. Yeah. You know, and Hugo Weaving also is, is fantastic. You know, doing amazing things with a very, again, like kind of restrictive part, you know, it's like you can't really be showing emotions, but he kind of goes right up to the edge and like comes back down. Um, and like, I think this is the first movie I'd ever seen him in because he hadn't done Lord of the Rings yet. And it was like, who is this guy? This guy's great. Super charismatic, even as this very wooden character. Yeah, I 100% agree about uh, Lawrence Fishburne. I think he, in a lot of ways, for me, I think he's kind of the star as far as the the quality of acting. I think he's he's on top. I think Keanu is cast really well and fits his role. But Lawrence Fishburne is kind of stealing the show. Um, you know, exactly what you were saying, where it's like when he's talking, I'm listening and I'm buying it. Um, I love the, <laughs> the exposition that he has. Like it, it, it just, it's entertaining. You know, he feels like Morpheus. Like I believe mm. it. And like you were saying, some of the other uh, uh, actors who are giving that exposition, it feels more like they're reciting the lines mm-hmm. rather than like Morpheus and Lawrence Fishburne are kind of one and the same and they believe in neo right mm-hmm. and it's like yeah you can tell it i believe him you know I, i'm buying what he's selling some of the others not so much and and not that it's bad um all the time uh i think carrie Ann moss is is totally fine most of the time um but some of those exposition exposition dumps for lack of a better term are a little rougher. Yeah. I also have a hard time with the quote unquote chemistry between um, <laughs> Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss. I mean, they're, it's the male lead and the female lead. Yeah. So they're destined to fall in love. She's destined to fall in love with a dead man. That seems to be her motivation for falling in love with him because she was told to. Although I do wonder if her kiss is the thing that brings Neil back from the dead. <laughs> kind of, you know, a little fairy tale vibe. <laughs> a little fairy tale vibe there, a little bit. Uh, watch, this time on the watch through, I was like, 
Well, it did happen immediately after. I don't know if, you know, happening after is actually causation, but the timing was interesting. <laughs> so many good lines in this movie, though. Like, I always try to pull out like two or three instances of dialogue that I really like. And there's just too many. I, I filled up like a page and a half of dialogue. <laughs> and so I won't share all of them. I'm just going to share one. But this would be a good opportunity for those of us, uh, those um, our listeners. And we've got some new listeners too. I just want to throw that, like, there's somebody in France listening to us. How's it going over there in France? Thank you for listening to us. Uh, anybody, though, if you guys have quotes from The Matrix that you like, please share them with us. Twitter, Facebook, email, SpeakPipe, what have you. My favorite line, though, is this little exchange from uh, Morpheus and Neo. And it's in the scene with the woman that were, with the red dress. It's at the tail end. And, and Neo says, what are you trying to tell me? That I can dodge bullets? Which is a cool question. But the response, no, Neo, I'm telling, trying to tell you that when you're ready, you won't have to. And I'm getting chills right now just thinking about it. Like, what kind of power is that? And then we get the payoff <laughs> even more. And I'm like, yes, I remember that. He freezes the bullets in midair and it's just like, that is amazing. Yeah. Well, it's freaking awesome. And I think it's it's great because you get that payoff at the end of the film too. Yeah. What about you? Did you have any So that was one that that was one that I really liked. For me, it was um the red pill blue pill. Mm -hmm. Um so uh, Morpheus says, "This is your last chance. After this, there's no turning back. You take the blue pill, the story ends. You wake up in your bed, you believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. And in, in particular, it's that last part right there. Mm -hmm. And what I love about it is that's the invitation to adventure. And that to me is like such a cool moment in the story where it's like, okay, I want you to take the red pill. <laughs> like, let's see how deep the rabbit hole goes, you know? Yeah. And that's, that's, it. it's like a moment of like, it reminded me of when I'm reading a good book and I get to the end of a, a, a cliffhanger at the end of a chapter. And I'm like, I, I want to see what happens next, right? That's what it felt like. Uh, and then you have a, a great, uh, like, crawling through the wall action scene after that. So Yeah. Good stuff. So I kind of ripped on, on Keanu Reeves' acting. I did a little <laughs> earlier. But I do want to say, when it comes to body language, I picked up something this time that I don't think I'd ever picked up before. Because uh, it ends, you know, it ends with him vomiting when he comes out after getting the, here's the thing about your a battery and all of that stuff and shows the baby eating other baby, liquefied babies <laughs> and whatever else. Horrible. Yeah, you, we would all vomit. But if you watch the whole scene, like you can see him growing uncomfortable and kind of nauseous throughout the whole, like it's a couple of minutes. It's a good two or three minutes where he is progressively getting, you can kind of see him kind of swallowing a little bit. So it's, I think it's a really solid piece of acting where he's very measured, but it's progressively getting worse until you actually have that, yep, now I'm done and here it comes. Another moment was when he was in the police station and I think he was talking to Agent Smith and Keanu Reeves flips Agent Smith off and he, he gives me like, give me my, my phone call. And Smith says something like, what good is a phone call if you can't speak? And the physical acting that Keanu Reeves does for that, I think is really good too. 
Yeah, I had that one as well. That's, yeah, I'm like, wow, actually this guy, you know, if I give him credit, <laughs> if I'm looking for it, he can actually pull this off. The scene, another great thing about that scene, and I probably should have mentioned this in cinematography, is how that scene begins is fascinating because it starts and it's so quick. The first time you watch The Matrix and you haven't seen the other ones, you see like the doll, the little monitors. And like, oh, that's, and just, it's so quick. You're like, I don't even know what that is. I'm moving on. And now we know, of course, that's the architect is watching them. So it's interesting that they had that, you know, four years before the sequel that they just kind of seeded that one little, one little <laughs> glimpse of that to kind of really tell us, like, we don't even know he's in the matrix yet. Like, yeah. what is happening here? Yeah. So kind of a cool little, but like, it's, it feels heavy handed, like on the outside like, after knowing it, but I didn't catch that yeah. first time I saw the film. So <laughs> kudos to the Wachowskis. Nice job. Um, what about, uh, what do you think about the costumes? So, yeah, I was kind of thinking about that. And I wanted to touch on something that's sort of related, like production design in general. Um, and this is also kind of related to cinematography a little bit. But uh, just what struck me is that a lot, there, there's like a lot of moments throughout the film that are lit very harshly. There's very deep shadows. It's very, very dark. And then you also got really, really harsh lighting. And so just like the overall production design um, in some of like the hallways and when they're inside the matrix, especially early on in the film, it is really it, like black and white. Like there's lots of shadows, lots of darkness. There were moments when um, like Morpheus and some of the other characters are all wearing, you know, like black. <laughs> they, yeah. they, they blend in so much with the background in, in certain scenes. Um, and then there's such a contrast also in just the lighting when they're in the, the real world, when they're on the ship. Everything's much softer. Everything's lit a little bit more evenly as if it were normal lighting. You know, it's yeah. not as dramatic in that, in that that sense of like production design. They really, not just the color, but they really try to differentiate between these two different worlds. Yeah, the angles are very sharp as well. Like all the architecture and everything in, in the matrix is very boxy and you know, you don't get really rounded shapes until they're in the real world. I do find it interesting that the good guys are wearing black. Mm -hmm. That's kind of an interesting, you know, subversion. I've always wondered how come Morpheus's glasses don't have like ear stems or whatever they're called. <laughs> he's just that always, cool. He's just that he's like, I don't need any of that stuff. I'm gonna put it on my nose and I'm that cool, it stays on. And his green tie. His matrix yeah. tie. <laughs> Uh, and then, so again, another contrast, you know, you have uh, rags, threadbare clothes in the real world versus these very stylized, you know, very fancy, very expensive, you know, custom clothes in, in the Matrix. Mm -hmm. The whole concept, you know, of uh, residual self-image, I've always liked that. Just yeah. thought that was amazing. What a, you know, another great kind of philosophical, you know, question, you know, how we view, you know, what's more important, how we view ourselves or how the rest of the world does, you know, this it doesn't answer that, but it asks it, which I think is, is more important. As far as uh, locations, just about everything is, you know, in a computer, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it was filmed uh, in Sydney. So there's some, like a lot of the cityscapes are, are Sydney without all the, you don't get to see the opera house, of course, because it's supposed to be just a generic American city. Um, but... It feels, the locations feel real, even though they're on a soundstage. Like the Nebuchadnezzar feels real. You have that used universe 
uh, concept, which of course, you know, Star Wars is kind of the grandfather of all of that. Um, yeah, the late '90s tech <laughs> is is kind of fun. The you know the cell phones, remember thinking those were so cool, and now it's like, wow, that's dated. Um, but then the patchwork tech in the real world, so everything's everything's you know broken down and used versus brand new. And again, you have this great contrast between like you never have a doubt, you know, which part of the are you in the matrix or the real world? Mm-hmm. It's very clear. So an excellent job done with that. The analog phone booths. I love seeing phone booths in movies just because I'm like, I remember those. <laughs> That's what that is, kids. <laughs> we used to have to put a quarter in there. It was a dime at one point. <laughs> and how about that little tracker bug thing that goes in his belly button? Yeah. That's an interesting prop. Yeah. that that That's really well filmed too. I mean. Yeah. And that brings up a point where some of the CGI has aged really well. And some of it has not. <laughs> yeah, so that's a good example of CGI. Yeah. What What's a bad example? Just out off the top of your head. Actually, that that one when it um, uh, when Agent Smith first picks it up. Yeah. From he's got oh, like, yeah. it looks like a cigarette case or something, and he picks it up right. and it like transforms, and that looked really dated. Yeah. Now the actual when they were like pulling it out of Neo. Yeah. That was really solid. Yeah. Those effects really held up well. I think some of the, um, the flying around, uh, the the kung fu, you know, the martial yeah. arts, arts fighting. I thought that all worked really well. Yeah, um, a lot of stuff done in in, in frame. You know, there's a yeah. lot of uh, wire work and and things like that. Uh, real real stunts. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you see that like in the second movie, like you like the the brawl with all the Smiths. Like that doesn't hold up nearly. No, well. it does not. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's. Let's see, that's 2003, so yeah. it's, yeah, it's it pretty was, early it on. stretching what you could believably do, I think. Yeah, yeah. This film hasn't quite done that yet, so. Mm-hmm. All right, so uh, characters. We talked a little bit about um, the, the casting is always just fascinating to me because this was definitely a film where it wasn't like, hey, these are the people we wanted from the beginning. I mentioned Will Smith was a possibility at one point. Um, it turned it down. Uh, Nicholas Cage turned it down. A lot of people turned it down because this was like the Wachowskis had not made a big movie. Yeah. This came out of nowhere. I mean, it, yeah. we talk about now how, you know, it doesn't have to be released in the summer to be a big movie. This came out early. Like this was like a March release, I believe. Let me double check that. Yeah, March 31st. So this is not a summer movie. This came out, I remember it came out earlier than Phantom Menace. And so that was like, oh my gosh, the Phantom Menace can be so amazing because this was good. That was kind of the way we looked at it. Um, so it's kind of buried a little bit. It kind of came out of nowhere. So you have all these people turn it down. Uh, Brad Pitt turned it down. Val Kilmer turned it down. Leonardo DiCaprio turned it down. Johnny Depp turned it down. And finally, they settle on Ted <laughs> Keanu Reeves, and he's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, Morpheus, as you know, Lawrence Fishburne as Morpheus. At one point, Gary Oldman was was considered. Samuel L. Jackson, who I love, Samuel L. Jackson, but I don't like that for him. I don't. I don't do think, think. I don't think it fits uh, Sam Jackson. Uh, no. I, I think Gary Oldman's also a fantastic actor. I. It's so hard because that role is so, like, molded to Lawrence Fishburne. Yeah. Like, I don't think I you agree. can like tear it apart. It feels wrong yeah. to think of other actors in that role. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the last one I will uh, will bring up is is for Trinity. We have Carrie Ann Ma- Moss, who like the you know absolutely put her on the map. Mm-hmm. 
and I think for the most part, she's really, really good in the film. I, I think that she does what she's given uh, and is she's reasonably charismatic. The, like, like I said, the chemistry thing is kind of iffy, but she's she's captivating on screen. You can't take her eyes off her, like starting with the beginning of the film. Um, so she's really good in the role. Janet Jackson, of all people, was offered <laughs> the role to begin with, right? Uh, Selma Hayek auditioned for it, and so did uh, Jada Pinkett, uh, Jada Pinkett Smith, who later, of course, shows up and, as Niobe in the in the second movie. Uh, but uh, I think the cast, for the most part, is pretty solid. I don't think there's anybody that like, oh my gosh, this guy's in the movie. Why is he here? Right. Uh, he, and there's lots of smaller parts that they don't have to do a whole lot. I really like Joe Pantoliano. I think he's fantastic as Cipher. He's got the I think other than. Uh, Agent Smith, and then he go weaving. He has the most personality because mm-hmm. even though, even though Lawrence Fisherman's great, he's not and charismatic. He's just kind of I don't want to say he's one note, but he's kind of he sticks right in the pocket. Where Cipher is, you, you want to like him, and then that's brilliant, right? Because he is kind of charismatic, and so you're like, oh, he's the bad guy. <laughs> he's a traitor. That stinks. So I like that guy. So it's a good casting choice there. Uh, moving down, we're a hero's journey. We're officially a hero's journey. <laughs> uh, we made it. Um, and uh, one thing I did want to say about this was, as great as this movie fits, Hero's Journey, I used it. This was the first time that I started teaching Hero's Journey uh, in school. This was one of the four movies that I used to show the patterns. And then after a year or two, not enough kids had seen it, so I had no idea what it was. And so my big question for you, Matt, is... Is the Matrix still relevant? That's a really interesting question. Um, short answer is yes. Longer answer is I think it's still relevant, but it may be relevant for different things. You know, we talked about how very early on the Matrix is kind of famous for some of the use of its special effects, right? And it kind of opened up Hollywood and audiences to the idea that you could make these kinds of effects believable and they would work. Uh, That is not what's going to capture (laughs) new audiences. Because like we said, some doesn't hold up. A lot of it still does, but it's not as jaw-dropping as it was when it was first released. I do, however, think that it's still a really solid film. And I think stylistically it's different enough that it's really interesting to talk about it, especially contrasting it to other films. I mean, I just think about like right off the top of my head, it'd be so interesting to do an analysis of like how much the camera moves in the matrix versus something like Phantom Menace, you know, two movies that were coming out very close to each other. Um, the opposites of an unknown in George Lucas and the Wachowskis where, you know, like you said, virtual unknowns uh, until the matrix came out. I think that it is a movie that you could definitely study and look at uh, to learn more about filmmaking. And so I think on that level, I think it'll always be relevant. I think all good movies are relevant in their own way, at least for that reason, you know, other than just being an entertaining film. I think there's a lot of very interesting, when we talk about cinematic language, there's a lot of meat that you can kind of gnaw on for this movie. 
Love it. Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. I, I would just like to add that I think narratively that it, it asks some very interesting questions, you know, specifically whether or not Neo is the one by destiny or by choice. You know, he goes to the Oracle and there's all these potentials, which I think is an interesting curveball to throw in there. You know, Morpheus believes that he is. And then Neo is ultimately told that he's not. You know, but is that just the push that he needs? And there's so there's this, it, they never really answer that question. But I love that fact that it's like, well, maybe he is. Maybe he's because he chooses to believe that he is the one, mm -hmm. that he becomes the one. And so, yeah, maybe, he's maybe like, it doesn't matter what destiny says. Yeah. Yeah. So you have this really interesting balance between predestination and, and free will, which is, I mean, that's, that's a, is there a more human question than that? Right? Are we in control of our lives, or is there something larger that's kind of putting us on our path? You know, underworld. I had this kind of underworld build, uh, building kind of blends together. I mentioned earlier how it's this really interesting blend of like mythology, philosophy, and then tech, which explains away most of it, especially in the second movie. Well, this one they talk about deja vu is just a glitch in the matrix. In the next movie, it's ghosts and vampires and all these things. You know, they're not. You know, they're not real. They don't actually happen. It's just you know, it's a computer glitch. But then you also have things, you know, just to kind of a little bit into the next movie where Neo controls the Sentinels outside of the Matrix, which appears to be a very supernatural thing, unless he's got Wi-Fi. I'm not sure what's <laughs> going on there. You know, one of the theories that came out um, around this, when that movie came out, and I just want to touch on this briefly, because, you know, one of the reasons we're doing this film now is the Matrix Resurrections is going to be out a week after this episode comes out is the theory that I've, I hope they revisit it in that there's layers to the matrix and that they never got out, that the real world <laughs> is just one more one level. One more layer of the matrix. So I don't know if it's going to go there. It'd be interesting. I would love it if it would, because isn't that what like long-term sequels and prequels are supposed to do is like subvert all your expectations and completely <laughs> reframe everything and like make everyone mad. Not according to some Star Wars fans. <laughs> <laughs> But like that would be, you know, that's your Phantom Menace Last Jedi moment. Yeah. If they were to do that. And like, nope, you thought you had it figured out. <laughs> it's not. So uh, it'll be I'm, interesting. I'm be interesting. Yeah. 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 Can't wait to see what it is. But if it's that, I'm gonna freak out. <laughs> um, love too that this film, you know, it's it builds on a lot of other mythologies. Like you have a lot of biblical references. The Nebuchadnezzar, we mentioned that. Um, Zion. There's lots of like Judeo-Christian themes and names that show up in this. And of course, it builds on Japanese animation, martial arts films, and like uh, stories with evil artificial intelligence like 2001, The Terminator, even Tron. Um, but it's just, it's influenced almost as many things as I think it's pulled from. You know, I love Inception, but there's no Inception if there's not The Matrix, right? Ready Player One, even like the new Jumanji movies, Free Guy, like the Matrix, they all the Matrix for their existence. Mm -hmm. So, any final thoughts, Craig? All right, here's my big final thought for you, Matt. Okay. Would you ever consider being plugged back into the Matrix <laughs> like Cypher did? Uh, without thinking about it too much, no. Would you? I don't think so, no. Yeah. Especially knowing that I'm going to be like a cannibal. <laughs> That's the worst. That's the thing for me. I, I think there there's this sense of 
the all the the people outside of the matrix remind me a lot of the rebellion you know fighting against the evil empire and i and i feel like there's this kind of brotherhood that exists where it's like yeah it would suck but at the same time there's also good to it right like you're fighting the good fight that kind of thing so no i don't think i'd be plugged back in that's a great final thought (laughs) (laughs) I just I, I wanted to to briefly say that um, I think one thing that I love about the film is that it just it sets out this really specific and unique world for the story to inhabit. Um, where I, I feel like, you know, we, we talked about how it's this this blend of all these different things, but it also just feels I, I don't know, it just feels refreshing. It felt like a really vivid world that you, know, you mentioned the, the lived in um, you know world for the production design and stuff it just it felt so complex and real and uh, I think that's just like that's just fun I I just enjoy that yeah I'm glad that you you brought that up because it it may be interpreted from what I just said that it it's kind of just a pastiche of a lot of different things and it's not really its own thing and it is it is its own thing like in in much the way that that star wars is a blend of samurai and westerns and you know joseph campbell and myth and all of these things it's still there's this alchemy that has to happen for the film to become its own thing and Mm -hmm. i do think that the matrix achieved that it is not oh this is just like that and you never had that feeling and i think you still don't have this is a ripoff of whatever else it's you know, it fits the hero's journey, as does so many countless. things. Countless, yeah. Right, countless things. But it has its own mythology, and its world building is solid enough that, you know, it, stand, it stands on its own. Yeah. So as we close, we just want to say thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook. Email us at readingbetweenreels at gmail.com or use the SpeakPipe app on our website. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast catcher. We'd love to hear your feedback, and it really helps get the word out about the podcast. And if you haven't yet, please join our Facebook group. It's a safe place to share your thoughts and discuss all things related to movies. And one last thing. Our next few episodes are going to be reviews of some of our favorite episodes of The Mandalorian from Disney+. Plus. We'll be breaking down Redemption and The Tragedy, those two episodes. Send us an email or voicemail about your favorite moments from The Mandalorian, and we'll share them on the next episode. 